We're continuing to move on in our study of Mark's gospel. And this morning we focus in upon the first 13 verses of Mark chapter 7. The message is entitled, Replacing the Commandments of God with the Traditions of Men. I thought a lot this week about the matter of tradition. I remember the Jewish father in Fiddler on the Roof who sang tradition. I was just waking you up. He was obviously in love with tradition. And I thought about that and I thought about what tradition is in its essence. And I thought that tradition is such a strong pull. It's such a, an overwhelming thing at times, the, the pull, the force of tradition. And tradition itself, I think by simple definition, is simply the passing on of one aspect of teaching or many aspects of teaching from one person to another, whether that's parents to children or from society to society. In fact, uh, at the end of the first service, uh, Mark Whitlock came up to me. You may have heard this before, but he uh, reminded me about uh, the tradition about the woman who was carrying on a family tradition passed down to her by both her mother and grandmother. You remember that? Every Easter, when preparing the ham, uh, her grandmother would cut off the end of the ham before putting it in the oven, and uh, her daughter, the mother, would obviously uh, have seen that and learned that, and one year at her own Easter, uh, she had her daughter there and uh, her mother and her grandmother, and her little daughter saw her cutting off the, the side of that ham, and so the little girl said, Mommy, why do you cut off part of the ham before you cook it? And the mother was just so proud of the question that had been asked, and she said, well, that's the way my mom taught me. And the child's uh, grandmother then said, and that's the way my mom taught me. And she patted uh, the older woman's hand, and at that, the great-grandmother, the instigator of the original tradition, began to laugh and replied, you want to know why I did that? I did that because my pan wasn't big enough. <laughs> you know, and of course, the moral of the story is Traditions sometimes keep us from really understanding all about life. And that is so very true because traditions are passed along and often we don't have a clue what they mean and why we're doing them. And that's probably the unfortunate thing about traditions because we often are so locked into them that when things are needing to change, People are very flustered by a change in tradition. In fact, even in church circles, tradition is a very, very hard thing. You've, of course, heard the oft-repeated phrase, the seven last words of the church. We've never done it that way before. That's tradition. Tradition is hard sometimes. Tradition is so gripping. It allows people to assume that they're doing exactly what God wants when in the final analysis maybe it's not what God wants them to do at all. I remember vividly reading the biography of Jonathan Edwards, the famous American pastor and theologian of yesteryear. And 
He served faithfully for 23 years in his congregation, but was asked to leave, in part primarily due to the fact that he no longer wanted to keep the tradition of having unbelievers in their church partake of the Lord's Supper. He, after studying, he had uh, had that tradition passed along by his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, who was the pastor just prior to Jonathan Edwards. And that tradition had passed on because they believed that by allowing unbelievers to partake of the Lord's Supper, it might be a means of grace to them. They might come to Christ as a result of that ordinance. And Jonathan Edwards, after having studied these things, said, no, only believers should partake of the Lord's Supper. It's for believers and not for unbelievers. And his church was so incensed by that, by the, the pulling away of that tradition in their congregation, they asked him to leave. Even whole denominations have split. Organizations, groups have separated from one another over differences with tradition. So many heartaches, so much confusion has occurred in our world, especially in the church, with regard to this matter of tradition. One of the commentators on the Gospel of Mark that I like to read and study is David Garland. And he wrote this, Traditions become evil when they run counter to God's purposes expressed in the ethical commands of how to relate to others. Traditions become dangerous when persons are blind to how they undermine God's commands. Traditions become corrupt when people become more devoted to upholding them than obeying God's direct commands. And I think that's so very true. And that is precisely what Mark wants us to know in relation to Jesus and his battle, his continuing battle with the scribes and Pharisees. I want you to follow along as I read the 13 verses that make up the first passage in Mark 7. The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they bathe themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes ask him, Christ, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down, and you do many things 
such as that. As we read those passages, it's very clear that there are two traditions that are being spoken about here. In verses 8, 1 to 8, there is the mention of the tradition of washing hands. And then in verses 9 to 13, Jesus talks about the Pharisees' tradition of not honoring their mother and their father. And this is a very, very sobering portion of God's Word because not only does it talk about tradition, but it also talks about matters of the heart, what's really going on inside a person, especially in relation to the matter of outward conformity to traditions. Let's dig into this portion of Scripture and see what God has for us. In verse 1, the Pharisees and some of the scribes, Mark said, gathered around Christ when they'd come from Jerusalem. We know that from the parallel passage in Matthew 15, 1, that these Pharisees and scribes were apparently the pick of the litter. They were the top of the crop. They apparently were very skilled in the matter of interpreting the law of God. They were also probably very adept at defining what it means to be holy, to be acceptable to God. They were probably the Pharisees of the Pharisees. And they were commissioned, apparently by their group, to go down from Jerusalem to Capernaum to find out if there was anything that they could question Christ or His disciples about so as to accuse them of violating the law of God. Now we know that this hostility is growing. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, the Bible tells us very clearly that the scribes and Pharisees aren't liking Christ at all. In fact, they begin to question Him in the first place of His ministry. And even in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, they've already accused Christ of casting out devils by the prince of devils, Satan himself. And so they're not stopping at anything to be hostile toward the Messiah. They, of course, don't believe He's the Messiah. Uh, they have no clue about that. Uh, they just assume He's just a rabbi, a fellow teacher like they, but He doesn't follow the traditions that they do. And so when they come down in this hostile committee of investigation, they begin to watch very, very carefully and very subtly all of the actions of Jesus and the disciples. And it must have been that the disciples were either in a home or maybe even outside, uh, maybe even as was later said of them, picking off some grain and eating them. And obviously if they were outside and if they were picking that grain, grain uh, they wouldn't have been washing their hands. And so this is the scene, and the scribes and the Pharisees now believe that they have it because they watched with their own eyes, eyewitness accounts of these men not washing their hands. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, look at verse 2. They had seen that some of His disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. Here's what they were saying. They were saying that this was a violation of the law of God. Now, you would look in vain, as I did, to try to find something from the Old Testament that said that all of the Jews needed to wash their hands before they ate their food. 
It does say in Leviticus and in some places in Exodus and in other parts of the Torah, the Pentateuch, that the Levitical priesthood should wash their hands before they ate. That, of course, was because they were handling, for instance, the showbread and other elements of holy worship. And God wanted them to recognize symbolically, mainly, that they were to be holy themselves and that they weren't just to pick up the common elements, the common bread or the common utensils and see them as anything other than holy if they were in the service of the Lord. And so God did, in fact, command the Levitical priesthood to wash their hands. Even in some cases, they, they were commanded to bathe themselves, to cleanse themselves so that they can be totally and completely clean. It was a, a way that God was showing them that that's what their heart must be like. Well, what had happened was the scribes and the Pharisees had gone way beyond that. They, in fact, had constituted a number of laws that they believed were the right kinds of implications from the law itself, saying that every Jew should wash their hands before they eat a meal. Every time before they touch food, uh, they should do so. In fact, these religious leaders were so fastidious in their keeping of the law or what they thought was the law that even when they went to the marketplace and they were around all kinds of food, maybe sampling some of the produce, that when they left the marketplace, they would actually go back home and they would bathe themselves completely. They would take a bath because they wanted to ensure that they were wholly and totally dedicated to God. And so they realized that Jesus and the disciples were not following this kind of tradition, and so they think they have Christ right where they want them. In fact, in verses 3 and 4, Mark even tells us what the Pharisees were all about in this regard. He says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands thus observing the tradition of the elders. Notice it doesn't say, thus observing the law of God. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they bathe themselves, cleanse themselves. And there are many other things, Mark says, which they have received in order to observe. Traditions, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. They weren't even satisfied with themselves and their own cleansing, they believed that everything that the food touched itself also ought to be cleansed. Any bowl or any pot or any cup should be completely rinsed so as not to be impure. You can obviously tell that what they had come to was that they believed that maybe the elements themselves were inherently impure or evil, and they needed to be separate from all of that. You remember Paul himself, the apostle, saying in Galatians 1.14, I was advancing above and beyond all of my own countrymen in this regard. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He must have been one of those men who was the letter of the law as a keeper of it. He must have been a fellow who was absolutely burdened by everything and everyone because they had so many laws. You say, how many? Well, after Paul's day, as the tradition kept mounting and mounting and mounting, and not just cutting off one part of a ham, but a whole bunch of things, they 
actually wrote a commentary on the law that came out in the second and third centuries called the Mishnah. You might have heard of that. And if you were a true Jew today, you would be a fastidious keeper of not only the Pentateuch, not only the Torah, not only the complete law and the prophets, but you were also a person who was endeavoring to keep all of the statutes that were spelled out in the Mishnah, the Jewish commentary on the law. And if that weren't good enough, in the 5th century, the Jews also, the rabbis, came up with another law book that was a commentary on the law called the Talmud. And the Talmud and the Mishnah have become, along with the Old Testament, the law books of the Jews. And did you know that the Mishnah itself has over 30 chapters on how to clean a vessel so that it might be pure for use? I mean, these guys were living every moment of their life endeavoring to conform to everything they believed God required. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, initially, nothing's wrong with that in the sense that anybody who wants to do God's will, anybody who wants to follow God's law, that's commendable. But they had obviously come to a place where all of these extra laws beyond the Scripture itself were binding, and not only that, they believed that all of these laws were binding not just on themselves, but for everybody else around them. And they began to say, listen, if you as a Jew, if you're going to be a true Jew, if you're going to be truly acceptable to God, you need to have clean hands and a pure heart. And so you need to wash your hands daily, not touching anything impure. And that's why I read Psalm 24 to you this morning, because obviously they had turned everything that was intended to be inward, outward. The clean hands and the pure heart, that was something that was external in their thinking. If I do this, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this, this is going to be acceptable to God. And this is exactly where Jesus and the disciples are being confronted. The scribes and the Pharisees ask him, verse 5, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? They really believe that they have a solid case. It's almost like an attorney who believes that they have the upper hand and they have an ace in the hole and that this case is going as exactly as they want it. David Garland again says, understanding that the Pharisees are trying to shame him publicly in a culture where a good reputation is the highest authority helps us see that Jesus does not simply evade the issue but regains command of the situation. He exposes their rigid and superficial religiosity as something that permits one to transgress the direct commands of God. In other words, instead of dealing with their view of tradition, is it right? Should we follow it? Is it a part of God's law? Is it really found in the Old Testament? Am I binding my conscience to that which is only the word of truth? Instead of doing that, they began to teach about all of these ceremonial washings, all of this fastidious law-keeping that had absolutely nothing to do with the law of God for every single Jew. And so, as though they assume the case is closed, the tables are turned on them immediately. Look at verse 6. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Jesus immediately addresses the issue. He goes right to the heart of the matter. As someone said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, and he goes right to it, right there. He doesn't even talk about ceremonial washings. He doesn't talk about what the disciples have done or not done. He doesn't talk about the logic of it. He doesn't talk about anything else but the issue at hand, and that was their hearts. And he says, you, the hypocrites. The definite article there. You, the hypocrites. In other words, you are the poster children for hypocrisy. This is who you are. You're the prime example of hypocrisy. Why? Well, Isaiah had it right. When he prophesied about those in his day, and obviously with something like this, the description rightly fits the scribes and Pharisees. They're hypocrites. Why? Because they put on a mask. This is what the word hypocrite originally meant. They put on a mask to play the part of an actor on a stage. They were playing someone they weren't really. They believed themselves to be following the heart of God when their heart was actually far from God. They were relying on their own traditions rather than on the clear commands of God. They were playing the actor. That's where we receive the, the phrase, play the man. In other words, do the deeds that are consistent with manhood. Do what you are called to do. Be who you are. And they were being someone else. J.D. Jones said they were mere play actors, men who wore a mask of religion. They paid outward deference to God, but their hearts were far from Him. What they had was not really a religion, but a ritual. They held up their hands in pious horror at the bare thought of eating bread with unwashed hands, but they were careless about mercy and love and truth. Religion had been smothered beneath ritual. Washing the hands counted for more than the devotion of the heart. They were careful of petty rules and careless of the great commands of God. And is that not the spirit of our age? Following rules and rituals and regulation. You can see that lived out, whether it's in a local church or within society itself. People who are outwardly conforming to a system, a code, maybe even a religion, but their hearts being far from God. And it wasn't that these Pharisees were saying something like this, how can I twist the law of Moses to do what I want in life? Or how can I somehow make the law more difficult to obey? No, of course not. Uh, we can't doubt their sincerity. Uh, their sincerity was, I want to follow the law of God as best I can. But you see, when you have a hard heart, a stony heart, you'll devise ways to conform outwardly, but inwardly you know that the outward is all you have. That's why Jesus says in verse 8, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. That's the point. That's the point of the passage. This is the crux of the apex, 
of the thought, and it is this, don't neglect the clear commands of God by replacing them with man-made tradition. That's the essence of Christianity, saying no to everything external and saying yes to everything internal. Not being conformed from the outside in, but living my life from the inside out. In fact, Jesus in the next passage will go right to the issue and he'll say, it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but it's what's already there that defines who that man is. That's really the issue. And the hypocrisy and deceit in their hearts were apparent to Christ. Now, they are not always apparent to us, but they were very apparent to Christ. In fact, what he does is most interesting. They pose a question to Christ and say, here's what you have done, you and your disciples, you've led them in this, and Christ gives the Isaiah prophecy and then turns around and says, I want to ask now you a question. I want to make a statement to you, and here's what he says. He was also saying to them, verse 9, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say given to God or dedicated to God, you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition which you have handed down and you do many things such as that. You know what's going on here? Apparently Jesus had done his own observation of the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, they're not the only ones who have done the scrutiny. Jesus apparently had been watching them or of course as God in human flesh he knew what was in man's heart and he said I now have something against you. You, by the sake of your tradition, say to your mother and dad, Mom, Dad, I really wish I could help you financially. I really wish I could support you. I know it's my duty. I know the fifth commandment says, Honor your mother and father. I know that it even says in Exodus 21 that if you speak evil of your mother and dad, then you shall be put to death. I know all of that, and I really wish I could help you. But as a man, as a Pharisee, as a scribe, as a religious leader, I only have a certain amount of money, and the money that I would have otherwise used to help you, I've actually given this in a dedicatory response to God. It's Corbin. It's dedicated to God. I can't touch it now. I can't use it at all. I'm sorry. You'll have to fend for yourself. I know that as you grow older, and as you need more help, as you become feeble and frail, I would otherwise need to help you. I would need to support you. I would need to give money to you. Uh, that's the way I know God would want me to honor my father and my mother, but we have a problem. I don't have the cash. All of my money has been given in this dedication to God. It's Corbin. It's, it's been given to him. And because of my oath, because of my vow, I can't give any money to you. I'm sorry. And Jesus says, you know what you've just done? You've directly violated the command of God, the fifth commandment. There are only ten, and you have completely set aside at least one of them for the sake of some sort of vow that you made to God when if you really looked at it, 
God is not asking us ever, ever, ever to put two commands against each other in a contradictory way. One has to go. And which is the one that has to go? Well, if your mother and father are there and they need you and they need the help and support, what do you do with this Corbin? What do you do with this wealth? What do you do with this gift? God would be saying to all of us, you take that money and you help mom and dad. You honor them. They raised you. They cared for you. They nurtured you. They prayed for you. They raised you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And now when they need you, now you don't say you don't have money for them. You don't have support for them. You honor them by giving them what they need. That fulfills the law of God. And no Corbin, and no dedication to God is so important, is so permanent that people's needs go wanting. You remember when David and some of his mighty men were exhausted and hungry and tired, and they went into the house of the Lord. What did they do? They ate the bread, didn't they? The showbread, the holy bread. Did God chastise them for that? No. Because bread that's separate and dedicated to the Lord is not so holy, it's not so dedicated, that if a person is in dire need, the bread can't be given to them. That's the whole point. But you see, when you choke on tradition, you say, can't do it, can't help you, I'm sorry, I, I, need, to, I need to give this money to the Lord. Now that's why the Apostle John says in 1 John 3, 17, and with you, when you have the world's goods, see your brother in need, and your heart is closed against him, how does the love of God dwell in you? See, if you see a need in another person's life, take what you have. Uh, there's no contradictory premises in the heart of God. If someone has a need, you meet that need. And that's what he's chastising them for. And you know, the more I thought about that, the more I began to ask myself the question as we close this morning. You know, how can I relate in these matters with my own life and the life of my congregation? I mean, it's one thing to hear about ceremonial washings and bathings and cleansings and Corbin and dedicatory money to the Lord and all of that, but how does that relate to me? How does that relate to you? Well, tradition. It's something that we all have to battle with. It's something that we all deal with. How do we deal practically with tradition today? Well, I started looking through the New Testament and I started reading every passage that I could that seemed to me to be Jesus making a point about tradition or a rule or a regulation or something that someone was doing that they really had supplanted the Word of God clearly for the sake of tradition, some pattern that they had established in their life. And so I came up with a few of those. Number one, number one, people today, as well as in Jesus' own time, fall prey to what we could call the tradition of external piety. The tradition of external piety. Piety is just the word for holiness. External holiness. You remember Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Beware of the tradition of practicing your righteousness before men in the matter of giving to the poor, and when you've done so, blowing a trumpet and telling everybody what you've done. In other words, that's an example of the tradition of external piety. 
Lord, I'm giving all this money to the poor and all of these people see me as a great philanthropist, a great giver. Aren't I so wonderful? I am so very appreciative that, God, you are fortunate enough to have me as a giver in your kingdom. I'm just doing this, of course, for you, Lord. But by the way, let's make sure that the advertisements are out there that I'm the one giving the money. See, that's the tradition of external piety. I do the works. No one's denying that the giving is, is being done. Uh, the poor receive the money, but what happens to the one who gives? Well, he endeavors to make sure everybody realizes that he's the one who gave. Jesus said, beware of that kind of tradition. Or in Matthew 6, 5 and 6, beware of the tradition of praying in public to be specifically noticed by men. That's another kind of external piety. That's what the Pharisees did. You remember in Luke 18 when the Pharisees said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner over here, this publican. I pay tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. What he was doing was he was saying the tradition is that you make people aware of your religion. You show people how spiritual you really are. And Jesus said, beware of that kind of tradition. Beware of it. Here's what you should do when you give. Don't tell anybody. Here's what you should do when you pray. Go into your prayer closet. The only person that needs to know is God Himself. Beware of the tradition of fasting so as to be noticed by men. Don't put on your sackcloth and say, by the way, I'm fasting. I want everybody to know it. He says, don't tell anybody. Fast on your own and don't let anybody aware of it. That's one kind of tradition. Here's another. We, call, we could call it the tradition of man-centered worship. The tradition of man-centered worship. Jesus said in Matthew 12, Beware of the tradition of those who adhere to the Sabbath for the sake of the Sabbath. And you know, that was one of the big issues. Jesus would go and He would cast out a demon or He would heal someone on the Sabbath. He would have His disciples eating grain or some other meal on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees would immediately object and say, this is on the Sabbath. You shouldn't be doing this. And Jesus would respond with something like this. Wait a minute. Well, maybe he wouldn't say it that way. But he would say, what would you do if you had an animal who was in need of your help? Animal, defenseless, unable to, to, to care for itself. And the animal was in trouble. And it was on the Sabbath. What would you do? And the obvious answer is, it doesn't matter what day of the week it's on, if you have someone or something in trouble that belongs to you or something that you see that has a need, you go meet that need. It doesn't matter if it's Saturday. Beware of people who only worship in a man-centered way. Someone who says, well, I can't do this or that because I'm worshiping or because I'm resting or because God has told me not to do this or that right now, and there's a huge need right in front of you. See, God never commands us to watch as a need goes by without working toward meeting that need, whether it's on Saturday or Sunday or any other day of the week. And if we say no to those things, it's really just man-centered worship. I'm more concerned about what I perceive to be the worship issue than I perceive the need to be. Or here's one that the Pharisees were really guilty of, the tradition of hypocritical judgments. 
Read Matthew 23 sometime, and you'll see all of these woes that Jesus gives to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. And one of those is, beware of those who tell you to do something when they themselves are un unwilling to adhere to the same standard. Beware of someone who says, listen, no, we ought to really do this in our church. And then you have that gnawing in the back of your mind that says, you know, I've never seen that person do that. I just wonder what's going on there. Or how about the tradition of preeminence? Jesus says, beware in Matthew 23 of those who love the place of honor and want to see, sit in the prominent seat and who want fancy titles. They're obviously more concerned with fame and recognition than service and humility. And boy, that's a biggie. That's tradition. It's a heart response for sure, but the outward is the fame, the accolades, the recognition, the titles. And that's why Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That's why he said, don't call me good. No one is good but God alone. And that's why he was saying, men, the Gentiles lord it over their flock. Not so with us. We're servants, and even in our leadership, everybody knows us as a servant and not as someone who's hung up on the title and the recognition and the fame. That's a very, very hard tradition to break. As is the tradition of self-centered ministry. Self-centered ministry. He said in Matthew 23, 23, Beware of those who traditionally give the lowest amount of money required while at the same time neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. He said of the Pharisees, You know, you have this bag of grain or you have these seeds that could be given to someone in need and you take one or two seeds out and you say, Here's my tithe. Here's my offering. When we know that really what is required is an extension either materially or physically or spiritually in any way, mercy and love and justice and equity. That's more of what God is into. It's not that He's not into the other. It's that He doesn't want us to give it in an external way when our hearts are closed in mercy and love and truth. See, that really means that that which is outside is just mere formalism. It's just coming, paying, paying as little as I can, giving as little as I can, or maybe even sometimes giving as much as I can, yet I know that I should give even more. Like Paul told the Corinthians that the Macedonians gave out of the wealth of their poverty, or the widow's might who gave all that she had. You see, that's selfless ministry. That's away from the tradition of self-centered ministry because it's saying, I know I don't have much, but what I have, I give it all. As opposed to someone who says, I'll give you this much, no more. Or how about the tradition of gray area liberties? The tradition of gray area liberties. There apparently in the New Testament church were those who were really hung up about certain foods, and maybe food in general. Some of it was food that was sacrificed to idols. Some of it was food that they didn't say or think was kosher. And so when they would see a Christian, and the Christian would be eating this morsel of food, this younger Christian would say, hey, that's not right. That's not good. You shouldn't be doing that. 
Now, you would think that the natural response should be, well, listen, young Christian, you really need just, need just to come along with the program. You, you need to understand that we're not hung up on that stuff anymore. Food is just food. Food is just biological. You, you need not to worry about such things. Grow, mature, and then you'll figure out you have the liberty to do that. Instead, Paul says the reverse. The way for them to mature is for them to see a mature Christian giving up their liberty. That's how you can really, really see a maturity in your own heart when you begin to see others around you knowing they have the liberty to do something and choosing not to do it. Now that, my friends, is grand maturity. That's why he says in Romans 14, If, because of food, your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing, eating food, it's no big deal, it's just biological, but don't allow someone to see you as eating that food and then speak of it as evil. Why? The principle is this. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the issue. The issue is internal. It's joy, it's peace, it's righteousness. It's not the external stuff. It's not food that I put in my mouth. That's not the issue. And if someone is going to stumble over my putting something in my mouth that they think is harmful to me or not best for me or not kosher or not right, what am I going to do? Give it up. It's no big deal. It's not a problem. Because I have the liberty both to do it, but I also have the liberty not to do it. And since I want to have my brother mature, I'll say, not a problem. I'll give that up. Or... Lastly, the tradition of self-styled sanctification. The tradition of self-styled sanctification. Here's Paul in Colossians chapter 2 saying, If you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, if you were still a part of the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not touch, do not handle, do not taste? Which he says are all things destined to perish with use. Why? Because it's in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. He really is saying this. Don't be caught in the, the tradition of self-styled sanctification. That is, that someone tells you that in order to be either accepted by God in the first place or more accepted by God in the Christian life in your sanctification, that you should not handle this, you should not taste this, you should not touch that. Why? Because Christianity is not about saying yes to this and no to this as though those external things were the issue. The issue for me is what is my heart like? That's why Jesus went right to their heart and said, listen, you guys are talking about not washing your hands. That's not the issue. The clean hands and a pure heart, that's what's inside. That's who you are inside. That's the important aspect of your Christian life. Don't buy into the commandments and teachings of men if they say don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. You say, you mean in the broad sweep of things? I mean, don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. I mean, everything is clean? Everything is acceptable? That's right, everything. God said to Peter when the, the sheet was brought down, what did he say with regard to all foods? I declare now all foods clean. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy, hey, I want you to know that everything, if it is sanctified by the means of the Word of God and prayer, it's okay. 
So let's not get caught in the religion, the tradition of self-styled sanctification. Don't touch that. Oh, don't eat that. Don't taste that. It's not good for you. It's not best. It's not what God wants. When we don't have a clue. Because there's nothing here. Nothing here that says it. What we should really do is say, you know what, Lord? These, I think, must be the traditions of men. All of these things. I don't want to be involved in self-styled sanctification or any of these things because that's not the issue for me. Christianity for me is love and peace and joy and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Aha! Now we're coming to the essence of Christianity. When this tradition is defeated, that's when you're really living as a Christian. That's when you're really humming along in the Christian life. When you're able to say, I've looked, perceived, inspected every aspect of my life, and I've been able to separate the commandments of God and the traditions of men. You say, when does that occur? Just before death. It's a lifelong process. The whole Christian life is built around figuring out which things are commanded by God and which things are tradition. So, what do I say? I say, Lord, keep me on the path of knowing and understanding your word in such a way that I say to traditions after a while, I don't need you. You were external to me. Now I'm working on the deeper thing. That's like uh, David Garland says this, One may compare tradition to the shell of the blue crab. To live and grow, it must shed its shell from time to time. Until it creates a new shell, the crab is extremely vulnerable. But if the shell becomes so strong and rigid that the crab cannot escape, that is the shell in which it dies. Losing traditions that make one feel safe and comfortable can cause great anxiety. But hanging on to traditions so that one becomes hard-shelled is fatal. It's so true. We become so locked in, so hard-shelled. We can't do it this way. We've never done it that way before. Or this is what we should do when, upon the final analysis, maybe that wasn't in God's Word at all. Maybe it was the opposite. And that just really makes all of us in our lives need to be the noble Bereans examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Is this a commandment or a tradition? If it's a tradition, does it go against the Word of God? It could be helpful. It could be a, a, a rule, a regulation. You go this, this many miles an hour down the street and you'll be okay. You won't receive a ticket. Well, that's not violated by God's Word. In fact, it could help you even in terms of your safety. But if I do something that puts me at odds with the Word of God, then I have to forsake it. That's a heart issue. As you bow your heads, I want you to ask yourself, Lord, have I... Have I been living my Christian life really not knowing the things I do, the things I believe, the steps I take, the rules I adhere to? Do I really know whether or not these things are tradition or God's Word? Lord, I want to, I want to know Your Word. I want to be able to know what is right and wrong, what is better and best. And I know that you've given me your book that shows me how. I know, Lord, that I've been 
involved in all my life learning from my parents and my siblings and my teachers and my society. So many rules and expectations and regulations. But Lord, I just don't know about some of them. I think it's time for me to jettison some of these traditions that are keeping me from a a heart relationship to you. Father, I pray for everyone here that we would do our very best to major on the majors, not on the minors. To not be so quick to criticize or to pounce upon those who are not doing it the way we do it. Unless we have a clear indication from your book. And so, Father, I pray for my own life and for all of the habits and mores and traditions and rules that I have built up over a long life and my fellow believers here. And I pray that we would be more astute in the study of your word, just like Jesus did when he pointed out a clear violation with the scribes and Pharisees. They weren't even caring for mom and dad. Oh, Lord, teach us so that we can care for these things as we know we should and let unbiblical traditions fall by the wayside. May you work your work in us so that ultimately we're replacing the traditions of men with the commandments of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.